Haley goes better with Coke, President Santos gets the boot, and we say goodbye to two groundbreaking women on The Political Junkie. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. And Ike to you, and Ike to me, I don't care how you quote it. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy, and we'll come out on top. Vote for Richard Nixon and Henry Cabot Lodge, cause they're the ones to lead the USA. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to episode 406 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. A lot of movement this week, a lot of departures. The passings of former First Lady Rosalind Carter and former Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, two amazing, groundbreaking women, will be discussed in detail later in the program. But for other stuff, where to begin? How about with the fakest of fake news? George Santos has been a punchline almost since the day he was first elected in 2022. The New York Republican has lied about nearly everything that's come out of his mouth, be it his education, his employment, his life, his family, his religion, what he had for breakfast. It was great material for late-night comics, but a disgrace for those who, for some reason, continue to hold Congress in high regard. During Kevin McCarthy's brief tenure as Speaker, he was often asked why Republicans don't kick him out. You know, I'm standing by him because his constituents voted for him. I do not have the power, simply because if I disagree with somebody or what they have said, that I remove him from elected office. Now, I will hold him to the same standard I hold anyone else elected to Congress. If for some way, when we go through ethics, that he has broken the law, or you know, then we will remove him. But it's not my role. I believe in the rule of law. A person's innocent to proven guilty. And if I was to hold the standard that if somebody lied, Joe Biden couldn't be president right now. He told us we, he had three degrees. He graduated first in his class the numerous times before. So let's not be sensational. The American public in his district voted for him. He has a responsibility to uphold what they voted for, to work and have their voice here. But at any time, if it rises to a legal level, we will deal with it then. It goes without saying that the GOP's tiny majority in the House might be one of the reasons McCarthy was in no hurry to boot him. But when the House Ethics Committee released a blistering report, followed by a 23-count federal indictment, it seemed like there was no alternative to expulsion. The vote last Friday was 311, which included 105 Republicans, to 114, more than the required two-thirds needed to expel. Speaker Mike Johnson made the announcement. On this vote, the yeas are 311, the nays are 114, with two recorded as present. Two-thirds voting in the affirmative, the resolution is adopted, and a motion to reconsider is laid upon the table. The clerk will notify the governor of the state of New York of the action of the House. Under Clause 5D of Rule 20, the chair announces to the House that in light of the expulsion of the gentleman from New York, Mr. Santos, the whole number of the House is now 434. Not to take anything Santos said at face value, but I will argue that he made an interesting point several days before the vote in an interview on Fox News. 
if it's their choice to change precedent and loop me in with three Confederate uh, turncoats who were who were expelled for treason and two convicted member members who were convicted in a court of law, so I'll be the first person to get expelled from Congress without a conviction or without committing treason. And it sets dangerous new precedent for the future to come. It's the demise of this body eventually. A fake George Santos had more to say on Saturday Night Live. Stop assaulting me. I'm being assaulted. <laughs> this entire country has been bullying me just because I am a proud gay thief. <laughs> but what else is new? America hates to see a Latina queen winning. <laughs> since the day I was elected, it's been a witch hunt. But if I'm guilty of anything, it's for loving too much slash fraud. <laughs> now, sure but he may not be leaving the public eye. He's threatening to reveal embarrassing and private information about several Republican members of the House as part of payback. That is going to be the undoing of a lot of members of this body because this will haunt them in the future. Another Republican who is leaving, this one voluntarily, is Patrick McHenry of North Carolina. And unlike Santos, McHenry's announcement made on Tuesday came as a complete shock. First elected in 2004, McHenry is best known as the first interim speaker of the House during the period after Kevin McCarthy was deposed as speaker and the House was paralyzed without a leader. McHenry is seen as an institutionalist more interested in solving solutions, such as working with Democrats to keep the government afloat, and less prone to the kinds of right-wing outbursts we hear from many of his colleagues though he did make headlines when he decided that Nancy Pelosi had to immediately forfeit her special office in the Capitol that usually was afforded to former speakers. Little petty, I thought. McHenry said he will serve out his term that expires in January of 2025. His seat is reliably Republican. He's a close ally of McCarthy, who made him speaker pro tem before Mike Johnson took over because he wasn't thrilled with any of the other Republicans in the leadership. McCarthy himself is expected to announce his own resignation in the coming days. Some of the far-right House members who wanted McCarthy gone were no fans of McHenry either, nice guy or not. There was another departure from the presidential race this week. Doug Burgum, the governor of North Dakota, who failed to make the cut for the third Republican debate and was going to get shot out of this week's fourth debate, announced his decision on Monday. He's quitting the race. The cast for Wednesday's debate is down to four candidates, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy, and Chris Christie. Haley made news last week by winning the endorsement of the conservative anti-Trump Koch Brothers Network, who can bring millions of dollars her way. She's fighting DeSantis for the title of GOP runner-up. For his part, DeSantis last month won the backing of Bob Vanderplatz, an influential evangelical leader in Iowa, and the other day he held a pointless debate with California Governor Gavin Newsom as the moderator, Fox's Sean Hannity, left no doubt whose side he was on. But a close friend and former roommate of DeSantis's, Nevada's Adam Laxalt, quit his job as chairman of the DeSantis PAC never backed down. There have been reports of tension and strategy differences between the DeSantis campaign and the PAC. For the record, Laxalt, who lost a tight Senate race in 2022, has shown no indication he's interested in challenging Senator Jackie Rosen next year. Finally, Democrats suffered a major blow in their effort to maintain control of the Senate when West Virginia's Joe Manchin, 
a maverick who has probably caused Joe Biden more headaches than any other Democrat, announced he would not seek re-election next year. What would cause Biden even more headaches would be a decision by Manchin to seek the presidency as an independent, as he is reportedly considering. The nation said goodbye to Rosalind Carter on Tuesday at a memorial service in Atlanta, attended by President Biden, former President Clinton, all five living first ladies, and by Jimmy Carter himself. Jimmy Carter, who is 99 years old, has been in hospice care since February. Rosalind's death on November 19th at the age of 96 meant that for the first time in their long lives, Rosalind and Jimmy were apart. They've known each other from the moment of Rosalind's birth in 1927, and their 77-year marriage made them the longest-lasting presidential couple in history. During Tuesday's service, her husband was brought into the church on a wheelchair, his mouth wide open but not speaking. Others spoke for them, including a grandson, Jason Carter. And as Reverend Warnock told me, uh, my grandmother doesn't need a eulogy. Her life was a sermon. And it was a mighty testament to the power of faith and to the power of a deep and determined love. And she lived this public love story that we all know of, that has inspired the world, including in these last days. And I think of all the things she accomplished, her most viral moment was when they were at a baseball game and the Braves put them on the kiss cam. And just like today, I mean, people were crying at the Braves game, you know. <laughs> but we, we heard about it for years. It's amazing. But in my family, we all experienced those more private love stories. And she was my grandmother first. And she was like everyone else's grandmother in a lot of ways. Almost all of her recipes call for mayonnaise, for example. <laughs> We all got cards from her on our birthdays, $20 bill in it. When I was 45, $20 bill. Like, and she was so down to earth, y'all. It was amazing. And one of the stories we've been talking about in my family these last few days is we were on a family trip and we were on a flight on Delta from here to somewhere. And we were all sitting in the back of the airplane together and it took off. And we looked over, my grandmother took out this Tupperware of pimento cheese <laughs> and this loaf of bread, and she just started making sandwiches. And, and she gave it to all of us grandkids and everyone else, and then she just started giving them to other people on the plane. And people were sitting there like, Rosalind Carter just made me this sandwich, you know? And they, they couldn't believe it, but she loved people. And she was a cool grandma. She was cool, like... She did Tai Chi with this sword. And if you want to see a five-year-old boy be excited, they would come back, Dad, do you know Mom Carter has a sword, you know? 
she once told me about this trip, Papa, that y'all took to Havana in the 50s. She said, y'all went down there for the night and you didn't get a hotel room. And I said, what'd you do? She looked at me like, we danced. <laughs> and we slept on the plane. They danced, didn't they? Also, their daughter, Amy Carter. My mom spent most of her life in love with my dad. Their partnership and love story was a defining feature of her life. Because he isn't able to speak to you today, I am going to share some of his words about loving and missing her. This is from a letter he wrote 75 years ago while he was serving in the Navy. My darling, every time I have ever been away from you, I have been thrilled when I returned to discover just how wonderful you are. While I am away, I try to convince myself that you really are not, could not be, as sweet and beautiful as I remember. But when I see you, I fall in love with you all over again. Does that seem strange to you? It doesn't to me. Goodbye, darling. Until tomorrow. Jimmy. Jonathan Alter is an award-winning author, journalist, and documentary filmmaker whose last book was His Very Best, Jimmy Carter, A Life. He was on The Political Junkie five years ago to talk about his book on FDR's first hundred days. This time it's to talk about Rosalind's 96 years. Jonathan, it's great having you back on the show. Great to be here, Ken. Well, thank you. And, you know, the conventional wisdom about Jimmy Carter was always that he was a so-so president, but an amazing former president, and that Rosalind Smith Carter made him a better president, a better man, and America a better country. How would you describe the role she played? Well, first of all, I completely agree with the latter part of what you said, uh, and while nobody would suggest Jimmy Carter should be on Mount Rushmore, nonetheless, his presidency was better than mediocre. It was uh, a political failure. Uh, he was uh, walloped by Ronald Reagan, as everybody knows, when he ran for reelection. But it was a substantive and often visionary success in terms of the way he, uh, his presidency changed the country, but it was also the product of a partnership. And Jimmy and Rosalind Carter had the closest, longest lasting, and I would argue most productive in terms of uh, policy uh, partnerships uh, of any uh, president and first lady in American history. And that puts Rosalind Carter into that first rank of first ladies, which she's not been seen in before, but which uh, the record very much supports. Well, you know, historians, of course, will debate what President Carter's term in office was. And of course, you're absolutely right. He may have accomplished many things and, and uh, came up with things that, that were groundbreaking. But at the same time, politics is, for, for many people, all that matters. And he, you know, with 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 Ted Kennedy thinking he was too weak, and Ronald Reagan running from the right, you know, he had his, and of course the hostages and the and you know the uh, gas lines. So we could talk about that, but you're absolutely right. I think if you talk about the great first ladies, the most 
significant first ladies, Rosalind has to be up there. And I, I think it's fair to say that she remade the role of first lady, right? I mean, it had long been undefined, right? Uh, that's that's correct. So um, it's true that um, Eleanor Roosevelt wrote a newspaper column and she held press conferences. She went down into a coal mine. But Rosalind Carter was uh, a designated envoy uh, of her husband uh, in Latin America, which no other first lady had done. And she got very high marks for how formidable she was in that role. And uh, she arranged for 33 states. She convinced 33 states to require vaccination before children could enter school, which is a huge huge public health accomplishment uh, in terms of preventing uh, measles, basically all but uh, eliminated measles in this country. Uh, And then most important, she uh, was the first and really only first lady who was responsible for a major piece of legislation. You know, uh, Hillary Clinton introduced health care reform, but it didn't pass. Rosalind Carter's case, she was responsible for the first major piece of mental health legislation in this country and for doing a lot to lessen the stigma of mental illness, which is an issue that she began working on when her husband was governor of Georgia, and and she worked on it until the day she died. Well, I'm going to play a little piece of tape from 1979, uh, a conference that she's with uh, Claude Pepper. I'm just going to play a little piece of tape from uh, her efforts on behalf of mental health uh, policy. To go into those homes and see wonderful, talented, experienced people wasting their lives day in and day out by just sitting really does something to you. And I made a commitment then in the campaign that if my husband became president, I would work with the problems of the elderly. The President's Commission on Mental Health and the Task Panel on Elderly elderly was um, um, extremely important and interesting and enlightening to me, showing the needs in this particular area. And then also, I had a letter from a woman who wrote um, to me while while we were working on that commission, and she said, it is a terrifying experience getting older in America. You suddenly find yourself an outsider. Indeed, one reaches an age where one is considered not to exist. We re- I receive so much mail. Every week I receive maybe 2,000 letters, and particularly those because they know that I'm concerned about mental health problems. I, I receive uh, mail particularly from those about this issue and from families of those who have older citizens in their, in their families who have mental health problems. And the reality, the harsh reality about our present system of mental health care is that for too many professionals and in too many programs, the elderly do not exist. Our commission was shocked to find that while as many as 25% of our older citizens may suffer from significant mental health problems, very few actually receive adequate treatment. Ken, her involvement with Claude Pepper was also very important in ending age discrimination in this country, and she worked closely with Claude Pepper on that, and that would be another of her many accomplishments. You know, it was also, I think of her on the campaign trail, of course, we just witnessed, we just went through the 60th anniversary of the assassination of President Kennedy, and you know, you know, of course, that, that fatal trip to 
Dallas and reading that Jackie Kennedy didn't like the campaign and didn't want to go to Texas and things like that. But she seemed to really enjoy being out on the campaign trail. Um, I'm going to play a little piece of tape right now. She Here she is thanking Ohio voters during the 76 fall campaign against President Ford, how thankful she was for, you know, their votes during the primary and how meaningful they were. And she looked like she was having a real good time of it all. I'm just glad to be back in Ohio. Ohio was so great to us in the primaries. I really believe that if you had not supported us like you did in the primary, that I would not be here today, the wife of the Democratic nominee. I love you. So Rosalind Carter, uh, at first, uh, was too shy to do much politicking. And she, you know, in the 60s, uh, when her husband was first running for office, she would go vomit after she had to appear in public. But she she became a very accomplished uh, campaigner who was a tremendous asset to her husband. And she also liked politics more than Jimmy Carter did. And she was shrewder about politics than Jimmy Carter, as, as everybody, including Jimmy Carter himself, would acknowledge. And she would also often tell him that he was uh, being too stubborn and should bend to the politics of things, and that if he didn't, he uh, might not get a second term. And indeed, uh, if he had listened to her more, maybe uh, he could have figured out a way to get reelected. Well, did I read in your column and your op-ed piece in the New York Times that many of his staffers wished he would he would have listened to her more often than he did? That's correct. They they thought that she was more uh, attuned to the politics of the presidency, and they wanted him to be as well. And he tended to focus more on the merits of an issue and say, well. I'm going to do the right thing and the politics will take care of themselves. And Rosalind said, well, the politics won't if you, you know, you can't do the right thing if you're not reelected. So, um, yes, she was, uh, she had a really good political head. She wasn't right all the time, but she, uh, you know, she understood politics and she understood policy. Now, normally if a first lady uh, gets too involved in policy, the, White House staff and the cabinet secretaries don't like it. But Rosalind Carter was so admired that she um, she was welcomed. Her input was welcomed. It was controversial at first when she began sitting in on cabinet meetings silently. Um, but Which that was uh, unusual itself. Unprecedented. But people liked it because they liked her. You know, Ken, I interviewed all of the Carters several occasions and more than 250 people who knew them. And while um, there were a number of uh, people who said, you know, both supportive and critical things about Jimmy Carter, I didn't find one person who unloaded on Rosalind Carter. She's just seen as a formidable, gracious, tough, appealing determined person. And people liked her, not, not just in the government, but the people that she met all over the world. You know, as you're saying that, I'm thinking of how people responded to either Nancy Reagan or, or Hillary Clinton. Uh, both had their uh, detractors inside the White House, and both were, con- both were controversial figures. And interesting that there was an area, a bad word about Rosalind Carter. 
That's right. I mean, there was, you know, before she went on that diplomatic mission, there were critics, but they were silenced because she said did, did a, such a good job in standing up to some of these dictators and representing the interests of the United States. And then, of course, uh, in part because of her husband's human rights campaign, uh, there was a lot of transition to democratic regimes in Latin America. And, um, and there was, um, you know, there would be occasional criticism of her on other things. It's not like uh, nobody ever was critical, but pretty much most of that was very much within bounds of, of politics. And it wasn't personal with her because um, whoever she worked with developed a lot of respect for her. And I think eventually the Carters were beloved by, by the end. You know, I, I think um, even um, very conservative people who had no use for their politics respected their, their marriage, their decency, their values, their willingness to go abroad in difficult conditions to try to eradicate diseases and build houses for the, the poor all over the world. It's kind of hard to be critical of that. But she did it with a, a lightness of spirit. Um, and, uh, you know, she had a nice sense of humor and just a very appealing person who I think is a, a kind of a global uh, role model for, for leading a life of decency and commitment to helping other people. When you were working on your Carter biography, did you work closely with her? Um, and was she helpful? What was she like to work with? Extremely helpful. And in fact, one day she uh, decided to do something that really surprised the people around her. The people at the Carter Library had no idea that she possessed letters, love letters that Jimmy Carter wrote to her when he was in the Navy. Rosalind Carter made those letters available to me. I put them in his very best in my book. Uh, and um, they are the most tender, uh, per personal letters ever exchanged between a, a future president and first lady. They make uh, Abigail Adams' letters with John Adams look extremely tame by comparison. And they're, the writing in them is lovely, and the sentiment is uh, people in their family you know, have told me they don't really expect uh, President Carter to last that much longer without her. You know, and in her remarks I played earlier, uh, Amy Carter talked about the love story between Rosalind and Jimmy. And, and you know, you have to, you know, anybody who was around during that, you, during that time, we all remember those jokes about having, you know, lust in his heart. But this was a, a true love story that it's hard to imagine anything like it, anything approaching it. Well, when he said he had lust in his heart, which, by the way, didn't bother Rosalind, um, he was just saying what most Baptist boys learn in Sunday school, you know, that they're human beings and they need to get used to the fact that they have lust in their heart. And the, the question is whether you're going to act on it, you know, and, or not, and especially if you're married. And so... Now, that thing was very damaging to Carter in the 76 campaign. It almost cost him the election. Um, but it was not really any reflection of their, their marriage. I mean, they did have some ups and downs like any couple. They were, they were married for 77 years. And uh, my wife and I went to their 75th wedding anniversary 
couple of years ago, and we learned at the time that there were only about a thousand couples in the entire United States who had been married for 75 years or more. And um, they, uh, they had trouble um, when Jimmy decided to leave the Navy and go assume his father's obligations after his father's death. And Rosalind really had really liked getting out of planes, and she resented that Jimmy had made this decision without her and uh, she gave him the silent treatment all the way south, a thousand mile car ride. Um, and she kind of she told me later that she sulked for most of the first year back in planes. But then she became, you know, his full partner. And then later, after the presidency, they they had a problem when they decided to write a book together, and they couldn't agree on what had happened in various incidents and quarreled over this, um, but eventually uh, got through that. And, and, you know, they offered the secrets of a successful marriage, which included never going to bed angry and spending some time apart. But they they did most of almost everything together and, and traveled to more than 120 countries. And I was, Ken, I was really kind of stunned to learn just how long they had known each other. So Rosalind... Rosalind was born in uh, 1927, and she was delivered by Lillian Carter, Jimmy's mother, who was a nurse in their tiny town of Plains, Georgia. And a few days after the baby was born, um, the nurse brought her toddler, Jimmy, around to see the new baby. So they knew each other for 96 years. It's almost unimaginable, and I can't think of any other couple in the entire world who've known each other that long. Yeah, my, my marriage sometimes feels like that, but <laughs> yeah, <it's> just... <laughs> um, yeah. You know, you were talking about the, the lust in the heart uh, comment, and, and this was interesting to me, because I remember during the 70, one of the 76 debates against President Ford, Carter had a very stern look in his face when he was recounting the interview at Playboy magazine, and he right. said, you know, on second thought, I probably wouldn't have done that. But Rosalind seemed to have enjoy it, and like laughed it off and said, look, this is part of his Christian faith. And, and that's all it was. And she had a big smile. So even, even that you saw her so likable and so engaging, whereas Jimmy looks very stern, you know, when he was asked about that. Well, he was worried because he had dropped 10 points in the polls. The interview had been published in September and it, it broke his momentum. And, but by confronting it in that debate, he sort of put it to rest, uh, and and she at that point, like their sons, was in private really angry at people like Oral Roberts and other Jerry Falwell and other pastors who you know jumped all over Carter when he said that, and they had all been taught the same thing when they were you know ten years old in Sunday school that you're gonna you lust in your heart. It, it's part of the Baptist education program. So they, they thought it was just so hypocritical for these guys to be launching these attacks. So she she was smiling in in public. In private, she wasn't mad at her husband. She was mad at these hypocrites, uh, what she considered to be hypocrites from the pulpit. And uh, there's a great story uh, involving Oral Roberts. Uh, about a year later, Jimmy's sister, Ruth Carter Stapleton, who had been 
Rosalind's best friend when they were growing up, she um, had become a kind of a new age evangelist. She, uh, she baptized Larry Flint on a pink yacht when Carter was president and, and um, Oral Roberts, um, she knew, and he approached her and said, you know, we'd really love to have President Carter come down and speak at our convocation at Oral Roberts University. And if you could convey that in- invitation to the president, I'd appreciate it. So she went to her brother and she said, you know, Oral Roberts wants you to come down and, uh, and speak in Oklahoma. And he said, uh, oh, you, you tell Oral Roberts that I am extremely uh, gratified by his very kind invitation, but of course I cannot attend because I have lust in my heart. <laughs> and that was that was Jimmy Carter's way of saying, yep. "Screw you, Oral." <laughs> Although he would never say those words exactly. Well, he wouldn't actually. I tell you something. This is since your your show is called Political Junkie. I think some political junkies have heard the story about how Carter said F the Shah, right? And so I want to know whether this was true. And it was one of, you know, literally thousands of things I had to crack down. And I spoke to Harold Brown, who had been his secretary of defense, spoke to him not long before his death. And I said, um, you know, Secretary Brown, you know, I, I heard this story and he said, it's true. I was sitting right there and I was Really surprised to hear the president use that kind of language, but he did in that case. Um, they were mad at the Shah for jerking them around um, during the Iran, before, during the Iran hostage crisis. Um, so what Carter would not do, nor Rosalind, is ever say, I don't want to say it here because out of respect for them, but gee damn, they would not ever say that. So Carter would drop some F-bombs now and again, and they'd use other profanity now and again, but not, not Mrs. Carter, but President Carter, but they would never take the Lord's name in vain. And they, they were very, very serious about that. I think it's fair to say when all is said and done that he may not have ever been become president had it not been for her. I think there's no question about that. And he would be the first person to say that. And he essentially said it in the statement that he issued uh, after she died. Um, but there are some very specific things that make that the case. You know, they really were able to, he was at 0% in the polls and every, place, yeah, every place she went, she won votes for him. And, but it was especially important in Iowa where she was just so popular with the farmers because she had helped run the peanut warehouse business that they uh, they had together. And so she would speak very, very intelligently on farm issues in, before the Iowa caucuses. And then also she spent 75 days campaigning in Florida in 1975 and 1976. Mm-hmm. And when Carter won the Florida Democratic primary, that's what really set him on the course to the nomination of the presidency. Um, he could, you know, he won Iowa and New Hampshire, but then he lost in Massachusetts, and he he was losing altitude, so he had to have that win in Florida, and it did something else. He beat George Wallace there, and that ended 
segregationist wing of the Democratic Party, which had, of course, been in existence since the founding of the Republic. A a George Wallace who won Florida big four years prior. Exactly. And when Carter beat him in the 76 Florida Democratic primary, that was huge. And he could not have done that without all of that campaigning by Rosalind Carter. So when she would be back home, you know, the first thing they would do is drive from southwest Georgia, where Plains was, over the border into Florida that she would do. He would be off campaigning in New Hampshire or wherever. And she would go there often with a a friend whose daughter was um, for a time married to their eldest son, Jack. Uh, And they would campaign all over Florida. And, you know, a lot of Floridian Democrats said later that she was just instrumental in his victory there. Jonathan Alter is an award-winning author, journalist, and documentary filmmaker whose last book was His Very Best, Jimmy Carter, A Life. Jonathan, that was just great, great memories about Rosalind Carter and, and what a life she and Jimmy Carter shared together. Thanks, Ken. You see this guy This guy's in love with you Yes, I'm in love Who looks at you the way I do When you smile I can tell We know each other Very well How can I show you I'm glad I've told this story before on Facebook and elsewhere, but one of my all-time favorite experiences in my professional career came in October of 2012, when I was in Arizona to give a speech and had the incredible opportunity to spend two incredible days with Sandra Day O'Connor. We drank wine, we went on a wild pink Jeep tour in Sedona. She also told me great stories in confidence on how she felt about President Obama, NPR coverage of the Supreme Court, the current justices, things like that. We even talked about the Goldwater campaign of 1964 and the time when she learned that President Reagan had appointed her to the court. To this day, I don't know why she trusted me to tell me her thoughts, but I am forever grateful for a remarkable 48 hours that I will never forget. O'Connor died last week, four and a half years after she was first diagnosed with dementia. Back in April of 2019, I had Evan Thomas on The Political Junkie to talk about his new biography of her, entitled simply, First, as in, the first woman ever appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court. In the book, as I said back then, Sandra Day O'Connor became alive, larger than life, vibrant and trailblazing. I'm replaying that interview this week. Evan Thomas, welcome to The Political Junkie. Thanks, Ken. I mean, there are so many things about your book that hit me, and one thing that hit me as soon as I opened it, and one thing that reminded me that we're talking about an ancient history, is that she was confirmed by the Senate unanimously, 99 to nothing. Yeah, that sure couldn't happen today. Uh, in fact, she wouldn't, she wouldn't have, have a prayer today uh, because she's too moderate and middle of the road. Uh, you know, she's not sufficiently doctrinally pure 
for uh, for the White House, uh, and she wouldn't be actually for uh, for either either party. Nope. I mean, she's just she's a creature that really I don't think could exist today. Well, I, I know. Remember one part uh, of the book you were talking about uh, her and her husband being Eisenhower Republicans. I have no idea what an Eisenhower Republican is. I mean, of course I do, but knowing the politics of today, there are no Eisenhower Republicans. I mean, right. the only right. Ike I could think of is the one who used to be married to Tina Turner. I mean, nobody talks about Eisenhower anymore. They talk about who's Reagan and who's more Reagan than Reagan. And and you're absolutely right. I can't imagine a president nominating him. But again, going back to that 99 to nothing vote, you know, you think of the more recent votes. You had 48 votes against Brett, Brett Kavanaugh. You had... 45 against Neil Gorsuch, you had 37 against Elena Kagan, 99 to nothing. The thought of the Senate being on the same page on a Supreme Court nomination is just just remarkable. It is. I mean, you know, I can't say, it's worth remembering that 10 years before her, there was a big fight over Carswell and Hainsworth in the Nixon administration. So it's not as if Congress never rejected people back in the old days. But, but, there was a lot more uh, comedy and uh, uh, just friendlier relations across the aisles in 1981. And I don't think anybody, at the end of the day, wanted to be against having a woman on the court. I mean, once there was a momentum to get going, everybody wanted to get behind her. Who, who wants to be the one who casts the vote against having the first woman on the court? You know, I remember at the time, though, when, when, when she was nominated, some conservatives sounded concerned that she was soft on abortion rights. I remember the... It was Jesse Helms and yeah. and other uh, Don Nichols of Oklahoma, others yeah. who said that well, maybe she's not really sufficiently conservative. That's right. I mean, that was insofar as she had a problem. That was it. The uh, this is 1981. The right to life movement is really getting going here, and the moral majority, Jerry Falwell and and uh, uh, Jesse Helms, was their great avatar yeah. and great leader, Senator Jesse Helms of North Carolina. And so it emerged uh, in the early going that she had voted to decriminalize abortion in the state of Arizona. This is before Roe v. Wade. And this was a red flag to the, uh, to the far right. And so there was actually an insurrection against her. Uh, but it was snuffed out because for a variety of One was that Ronald Reagan, although he was a conservative, did not want to take up these social issues this early in his presidency. He wanted to worry about taxes and the military. He did not want to get into a big fight over abortion or school prayer or anything like that. So the White House had a real interest in making this go away. Also, she is such a great ambassador in her own cause. She went up to the Hill, and she met with uh, Senator Helms, and he's a very courtly Southerner, and she charmed him. And she did the same thing with the sidekick, Senator East, and she did the same thing with Strom Thurmond. And she was a very winning, appealing, uh, very un- – and she wasn't – did not come across at all as a as an arch-feminist. Uh, that was not her shtick. Her, her, insofar as she had a shtick, <laughs> it, it was you know to be a relatable, in many ways, traditional woman. You know, I was thinking as you were saying that, I was thinking of all the attention that we've been reading and watching all these all this time about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and how she was denied this or that because of her gender. But but even though she was not, uh, you know, a, a feminist or a, a, well, I don't know what you want to call pioneer, but but Sandra Day O'Connor had similar obstacles in her career, like 
failing to get interviews at top law schools, for example? Well, uh, dramatically. I mean, when she was at, at Stanford Law School, high in her class, you know, right behind Bill Rehnquist, her classmate, and Order of the Coif and all those things, she applies to 40 law firms in California, in Los Angeles and San Francisco. She gets a grand total of one interview, and the, in the interview at Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher, they ask her, how well do you type? They were interviewing her to be a legal secretary. So she basically couldn't get in the private sector at all as a very top and very kind of appealing law student. That's 1952. Obviously, things changed, but all the way along the line, she had to fight. I mean, the law, the law in particular was a male preserve. Law firms, they would turn away women saying, well, we can't take you because our clients wouldn't stand for it. And how would the lawyers be able to talk to each other if you were a female? <laughs> you know, it's just it's laughable today when half the law schools are, you know, half the women in law schools are women, are, are half the students in law schools are women. But you know, back in 1952, it was a male preserve. Yeah, I was thinking. I don't think when uh, when somebody applied to Wayne Hayes's office from Ohio, they didn't even ask her if she could type. If you got hired as a woman, it was for other reasons. That's right, exactly. Um, You know, another thing about your book that I absolutely adored, and and, and it was one of the best parts about your book, I found, was your description of her relationship with her husband, John O'Connor. It sounded like a a great marriage. He was extremely supportive. Whatever she wanted to do, he always stood back and and make it happen. And, And most touching, I thought, was that, as you as everybody knows, is that she left the court prematurely when he took ill, and I thought that personal stuff about her was perhaps the best part of the book. Well, she it, it was a, it is a love story. It's as much a love story as it is a story about a judge, because he's a very male guy. He's a you know head of the Rotary. He's a fraternity brother. He likes to go to Bohemian Grove, all that. But always supportive of her, and when. She gets the nod from Reagan to be a justice. He's a top guy at a, at a law firm in Phoenix. He has to give all that up. And his career in Washington was not great. He, he did not have a successful law career. And she knew that and felt for him. And when he got Alzheimer's, uh, she took care of him for as long as she possibly could. And then she quit the, at the height of her powers. She quit the U.S. Supreme Court to care for him. She said so. I'm, I, he sacrificed for me. And now I'm going to sacrifice for him. And she left the court to care for him. But because life is unfair, within six months, he barely recognized her. She did have to put him into a assisted living facility. And it gets worse because he forms what they call a mistaken attachment. Uh, this is not uncommon with Alzheimer's patients. He, he, has, he has a girlfriend yeah. named Kay. And, you know, publicly... She says this is great. He's not depressed anymore. But privately, it you know breaks her heart. Yeah, it, it broke my heart to to read that part of the book. It was just just excellent the way. But even the whole the whole relationship from beginning, <laughs> and while while he she chose him over other suitors that included William Rehnquist. I mean, my goodness, <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. Yeah. Well, the, the Rehnquist part is was a lot of fun for me and my wife who researched this book with me, because um, it it had been known. And they, they, Rehnquist and, and and Justice O'Connor, let it be known that they had dated in in uh, in law school. 
In fact, uh, uh, when they came on the bench, when when she came on the bench, Harry Blackman, Justice Blackman, turned to Rehnquist and said, <laughs> "Now, no fooling around." <laughs> I love that. I saw, I read that. But 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 neither. But they had never told anybody that Justice Rehnquist had proposed, including to her. her children, including her children. I'm sure. I I don't think that we would have been allowed to see that box of correspondence if her kids had read it first. Because you know it's pretty private, and and we there there it was, and we got permission from, we had to get permission both from her, her own kids obviously, but also from Justice Rehnquist's uh, family to to use it, and they they did because you know at the end of the day both uh, Sandra O'Connor and and Bill Rehnquist married people they truly loved and had happy marriages, so it all worked out, but it was a little embarrassing for them, they just didn't want to reveal. <laughs> you know, once she got in the Supreme Court, that they that he had proposed to her. So much of the book is about her as a person, and of course as a trailblazer. But but how was she as a justice? I mean, was she out front on any issues of the court? Was she a leader in any issues? Oh, totally, totally. But not in a not in a doctrinaire way. She was was she a leader? Uh, in twenty five years, three hundred and thirty times she cast a decisive vote. Uh, five, four votes. Now, obviously, there are other people in the five, but she was often in the middle. She really was truly the swing vote. She didn't like that term swing because it, it suggests that she's fickle, and she didn't. She was actually quite decisive. But she's a centrist, and she was often, and, and in two areas in particular that are absolutely at the heart of what the court does, abortion rights and affirmative action, she preserves abortion rights and affirmative action for 25 years, even though she finds abortion, as she said in her confirmation hearings, personally abhorrent. She is the one who saves Roe v. Wade. And by the same token, she was not a big fan of affirmative action, but she is the one who preserves it. Why? Because she had an innate political sense of where the country was. She didn't have to read the polls. I mean, she, on abortion, take abortion. She knew that about a third of the country is against abortion under any circumstances, and a third is about four under any circumstances. But about a third are like her in the middle. They don't maybe not like it personally, but they don't want to say no to other women. That's where she was, and that's where the country was, and that's why she preserved uh, uh, Roe v. Wade. Let me play a little piece of uh, tape from President Reagan, uh, July seventh, nineteen eighty-one when he made the, uh, the, uh, the announcement. After very careful review and consideration, I have made a decision as to my nominee to fill the vacancy on the United States Supreme Court created by the resignation of Justice Stewart. Since I'm aware of the great amount of speculation about this appointment, I want to share this very important decision with you as soon as possible. Needless to say, most of the speculation is centered on the question of whether I would consider a woman to fill this first vacancy. As the press has accurately pointed out, during my campaign for the presidency, I made a commitment that one of my first appointments to the Supreme Court vacancy would be the most qualified woman that I could possibly find. Now, this is not to say that I would appoint a woman merely to do so. That would not be fair to women nor to future generations of all Americans whose lives are so deeply affected by decisions of the court. Rather, I pledge to appoint a woman who meets the very high standards that I demand of all court appointees. I have identified such a person. So today, 
I'm pleased to announce that upon completion of all the necessary checks by the Federal Bureau of Investigation, I will send to the Senate the nomination of Judge Sandra Day O'Connor of Arizona Court of Appeals for confirmation as an Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court. You know, Evan, in your book, you talk about the, the milestones that came later, the uh, um, uh, Geraldine Ferraro named to the ticket in 84. Uh, you mentioned uh, um, the first female uh, secretary of state, uh, uh, the, you know, uh, things like that. But this was, well, uh, for, for lack of a better word, this was historic. It was. I mean, we, it, 19, we forget how recent the history of women breaking through really is. Uh, because some, you know, our, our graduate schools are pretty evenly divided, male and female, and and uh, women are, are, you know, they not not that the battle is over. The Me Too people would would remind us of that, but but I mean, it's just much farther along than it was only, uh, you know, only uh, 40 years ago when, you know, for instance, uh, there were uh, 600 federal judges when Sandra Day O'Connor got on. Only eight of them were women, and almost all of them are Democrat. It was actually a pretty short list that Reagan was choosing from. I mean, there just weren't uh, Republican female judges. He he talked about how I'm not going to you know bend my standards. That's just not true. Uh, a state court of appeals judge, that's an intermediate state court. Sandra Day O'Connor didn't know constitutional law for beans. Her least favorite her least favorite course at Stanford Law School was constitutional law. She had a grind and crash that summer to learn the stuff that is just mother's milk up at the Supreme Court, you know, about the 14th Amendment, the First Amendment. That was all was new to her, but it was just not something that she dealt with really at all before she became a justice. I think I have my answer in mind, but what would you say was her most consequential vote? Well, I'm, I'm not sure. Well, I mean, Bush v. Gore, uh, because in in crude terms, that elected a president, and it's hard to get more consequential than that. Uh, you know, I could argue abortion in the Casey case because she really did keep abortion rights alive when it looked like it was going down. Maybe affirmative action, but I have to say Bush v. Gore. Well, because whenever I t- talk about Sandra Day O'Connor, of course, I've told a lot of people about the Pink Jeep tour story. Whenever I talk about her, they automatically go to Bush versus Gore, and they say that, well, you know, we really once admired her, but but yeah. they've we've turned on her since that vote. Yeah, no, I ran into that a lot. She ran into that a lot. She was she told her son on the morning the decision that came down, half the country's going to hate me, and she was right. That included a lot of her buddies, her friends. She moves in a social circle here in Washington, or she did, that was, you know, I had some conservatives, but it's Washington. So it's, it's the liberal establishment that Fox News hates. It really is. I mean, uh, there was a judge here named Judge Silberman, who had an expression, the greenhouse effect. This is the impact of Linda Greenhouse, the great New York Times uh, Supreme Court uh, uh, writer, had on justices. She would move them to the left. I mean, he was making a joke, but not really. Uh, if you you know, if you live in Washington long enough, at least in the '70s and '80s, '90s, you know, and you're part of the establishment, that would have the effect of pushing you to the left. Now, you, it's hard to say today, but that was true then. And so, so that means that a lot of her pals really felt betrayed by her. 
how could you, in such a naked, raw political way, uh, elect George uh, Bush? And she did not have a great answer for them. She basically said, oh, get over it, um, which was not satisfying to a lot of her friends. I get into this a great deal in the book. Uh, there's sort of a whole chapter about it. And uh, I think there is a you know, defensible explanation of it. But I, I can say, and I'm happy to give that explanation, but, but I can say that she was not comfortable uh, because she was a little defensive about it. And, and finally, this is so rare for her, in 2012, I think it was, uh, she told the Chicago Tribune that maybe they shouldn't have taken the case. They, they should have said goodbye and let the case continue in the Florida courts. Did she ever say that if she had to do it all over again, she would have voted differently? No. it's diff- She didn't say she'd vote differently, but she might have voted not to take the case, uh, to, to, let, to let this process go on. What would that have meant? And this is the reason why she voted the way she did. I'm going to get a little bit into the weeds here. But, but to, to remind, the issue in Florida is there's a, there's a recount going. It's too close to call. But the Republican Secretary of State, Catherine Harris, certifies that Bush wins, Republican electors. So there's a slate of Republican electors. But there's a recount, you know, court-ordered. And the Supreme Court stops that recount with the effect of electing Bush. Well, okay, what would have happened if the recount continued? Possibly, it seemed at the time, Gore would have won. So then you would have had two sets of electors, the, the group certified by the Republicans, and now a new set of Democrats. So what ha- under the law, what happens is it goes to Congress. And the House has a vote, and the Senate has a vote. And the Senate was going to be Democratic, and the House was going to be Republican, a tie. Under the law, the tie is broken by the governor of the state. The governor of the state, his last name was Bush. That was Jeb Bush. So she, looking down the road, could see it would look like a banana republic. The guy's brother elects him. Uh, and she just thought that was going to be too messy and bad for the republic, and so she said, let's, let's end this now. Now, that's a long and tortured explanation. A lot of people don't necessarily buy it. But that is the way she was thinking. In the end, in the scheme of things, what do we come away with with Sandra Day O'Connor? What, what surprised you the most about what you learned? You know, I, I, I get asked that question, and I should have a good answer because, you know, you're supposed to be surprised by something. But after you've spent three years working on a book, nothing surprises <laughs> you about her. Uh, she was what she appeared to be, a woman of the West, uh, independent, flinty, uh, self-assured, I suppose, you know, if you want to get under the hood a little bit here, what I liked about her was that she could be enormously confident and steely and kind of scary in a way. I mean, uh, you, you apparently had a pretty warm experience with her. Not everybody has that. But, but you saw something that a lot of people don't, which is there was a human vulnerability and a human side to her that was, you know, appealing. I mean, I, for instance, in the state legislature, the Arizona state legislature, she had to be pretty tough to be a woman in 1970 in the Arizona legislature, all these guys drinking and horsing around, and she had to be tough, and she was. But at least once her aides found her crying in the bathroom. You know, she wasn't impervious to it. She, she could get hurt. It struck me. Uh, I, would, I would be reading her diary or her husband's diary, and she would cry over stuff. Not over slights, you know, not over embarrassments, but... You know, she would if something was sad, she was human. She would cry about it. She worried. Uh, she wasn't blithe, 
And it made it just I found it tremendously humanizing when you consider how Olympian these judges are and she and they wish to be. You know, they they want to seem distant and remote. She's not really. Uh she's she's like the rest of us, only a lot smarter. Evan, she laughed at my jokes. Nobody laughs at my jokes. <laughs> well, she I would say either your jokes are funny or she's a good politician, or maybe a little bit of both. <laughs> Evan Thomas is the author of a wonderful new biography of Sandra Day O'Connor, appropriately titled First. Evan, it was just so great having you on the show. Thanks, Ken. Really appreciate it. Good to talk to you. That was my interview with Evan Thomas back in April of 2019 about his biography of Sandra Day O'Connor. She died last Friday at the age of 93. Santos is gone from Congress. Another expulsion of major political significance involving crimes that far outweigh what Santos has been accused of, albeit without national attention, happened in Ohio. Larry Householder, the Speaker of the State House, was convicted in March of racketeering, wire fraud, taking millions of dollars in bribes, and money laundering. We'll get into the specifics in a bit. Also convicted for his role in the schemes was Matthew Borges, a former Ohio State GOP chair. Two years ago, when he was under indictment, Householder was expelled from office. In June of this year, he was sentenced to 20 years in prison. By nearly every account, this was the biggest political scandal in Ohio history, a state that has had its share of political scandals. And Householder was one of the most powerful public officials in the state, a man who was respected and feared well beyond the boundaries of his 72nd district. The story of this particular case of corruption, the story of taking down one of the most powerful public officials in the state, is a fascinating one. Last month, in November, WOSU, the great public radio station based in Columbus that I've had the privilege of working with for the past 10 years, began a new podcast called The Power Grab. It covers basically everything you need to know about the scandal, the investigation and the indictment and the trial and the evidence that were used to take down Householder. It's a fascinating story that brings you behind the scenes with clandestine FBI recordings and witness testimony that showed the depth of the greed and corruption. The host of the podcast is Renee Fox, who joins us now to talk about the series. Renee, it's great having you on The Political Junkie. Thanks for inviting me, Ken. I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate that you're on because it's, it's really fascinating stuff. I mean, I've been listening to these episodes, and and as I was saying right before we went on the air, you know, I found myself getting absorbed into what seemed like a mystery or or a suspense thriller. I mean, we know Larry Householder was, you know, what we, he was accused of, what he was convicted of, and why he was sent to prison. 
But as I'm listening, I'm also wondering what's going to happen next. Like, it's done in a very thorough and smart way, taking the listener behind the scenes to some very ugly happenings in Ohio politics. So, Renee, you know, tell me who Larry Householder was. Well, I was going to say, tell me who Larry Householder is, but no, really, tell me who he was. Well, um, I want to thank you for the compliment on the writing. Um, we really did want to make it kind of a narrative of to tell people, to draw people in, in a way that, like, I think because there wasn't a televised federal trial that a lot of these details kind of got lost. So we kind of wanted to pull those together and make a narrative. Um, and in, in doing that, you, I, I learned a lot about Larry Householder, his background, and Maybe one of the most fascinating things is how he how he used the same strategies in 2001 to take power of the state house that he used in 2018. Right, the two so, the, he, he was speaker at two different times. Yeah, yeah, and he used similar strategies both times. He had um, donations coming in, and he didn't just get himself elected. He brought in a whole bunch of friends who could help um, vote vote him into power and support his agenda. Well, of course, you know, when you're running for speaker, just like Kevin McCarthy, he had a lot of chits over the over the many years of doing favors for people, and obviously Householder did the same. But some of the money, as we learned, as, as your podcast points out, some of the money he spread around was uh, through nefarious means, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. They had, um, and pretty much... Many politicians that you'll hear about have these. They're called 501c4s. They're known as dark money groups, and they're nonprofits that were originally formed to let people like organize a volunteer fire department or something like that. Like, uh, it's supposed to be for the public good, and they're not supposed to spend money on political things. Well, um, most of their money on political things, um, but that's there's no real checks and balances though because the IRS kind of lets these things go on their own. Um, they got a l- little bit in trouble and during the Obama administration when the Tea Party was was forming a lot of these 501c4s and they felt they were being targeted by the IRS. And so the IRS kind of pulled back and um, these things are kind of like free willing now. <laughs> like uh, they're just used very often to move money from one organization to another without um, people really knowing where the money's come coming from because they don't have to list their donors. So they could give it to a 501c4 that, say, someone like Larry Householder has control of or maybe one of his lobbyists, one of his friends, and the money can pour in from all directions. It doesn't have to be reported, and then they can spend that money on election activities so no one really knows who's paying for that ad that you're hearing on TV or the radio. Even though it's ostensibly non-profit uh, funds, right? Correct? Right, right. And like when someone donates to a political action committee or a super PAC, you've probably heard of those, um, Those they can donate unlimited amounts, but they have to put their names on those ones. So so they'll stick to smaller amounts on the ones they have to publicly, publicly report on and give the big money to the secret, secret organizations. You know, Ohio, I mean, as you know, Ohio used to be a, a swing state politically, uh, a purple state, but now it's sol- solidly red with Republicans controlling the governorship and both houses of the state legislature since 2011. So when you're the Republican Speaker of the House, 
in such a solidly Republican state, that makes you pretty powerful. Yeah, yeah. His really, um, some of the only challenges were really from people who wanted to stand up to him in his own party, who didn't like that he was coming. Like, the Republicans have control, and then there's factions within those Republicans, and and Larry kind of disrupted those factions and said, I'm going to come here, I'm going to bring a bunch of friends, and we're going to do what we want. Um, so Larry actually had to make some alliances with Democrats, too, um, which I think uh, we started seeing a new trend with the current State House speakers, the speaker uh, drama that we had earlier this year, too. Share some of those details of the crimes. I mean, those FBI tapes were really something. Yeah. Um, so there are lots of FBI tapes of Neil Clark, this lobbyist from Columbus, talking about what's going on in, in his his business with Larry Householder, um, actually talking to Larry on the phone. There's recordings of that. And then there's also these recordings they made at dinners that Neil Clark had with some undercover FBI agents who were posing as um, developers that that Neil was representing. Um, so that those tapes caught like hours long dinners um, with the alcohol flowing and um, stories going, some lots of lewd language and fun insider information. Um, and then the FBI also had an informant, um, and that's Tyler Furman, and he he appears in the podcast too. And he actually went undercover for the FBI. Um, and recorded former Republican Party chairman Matt Borges talking about this HB6. The bill was pushed by First Energy and some other uh, energy companies, and it, it gave subsidies to First Energy and for um, operating their nuclear plants uh, up on Lake Erie and to companies like AEP for coal subsidies for their coal-powered plants down on the Ohio River. So the the bill collects those subsidies from the from Ohio energy consumers and funneled them up to those companies. And when he gave the money, uh, the basic I guess it was a bailout of what 1.3 billion dollar bailout for the two nuclear power plants, the company rewarded Householder and his pals. Is that correct? Right, right. Well, they needed um, this. The scam needed a bunch of money up front because first they had to get Larry elected, and then Larry had to bring a bunch of friends with him, and then they had to lobby for the bill. And then they actually spent $40 million to keep the bill from getting repealed. So in total, there was at least $60 million put into these dark money funds, and a lot of the money went to 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 the effort to get First Energy's bailout, but it also went into things like mortgage payments and personal the personal gifts uh, that actually made, according to the government, made it a bribe. Like, really alleging a pay-to-play there. Throughout this whole thing, Householder, um, uh, he kept insisting that he did nothing wrong. My question to you is, did your podcast, or have you seen any evidence that your podcast changed anyone's mind. I mean, you know, maybe I maybe everyone was not convinced he was guilty, but but with these tapes and once you play the tapes, do you get the sense that minds were changed? Well, um I, I think it's hard to say that for sure. Um but um I think it's definitely possible that 
hearing that evidence for yourself, even if it doesn't make you think that they're that they're guilty of something or another, if you don't think you're qualified to make that ruling, it does give you that really inside look at the way these kinds of deals are made, even if there wasn't a bribe involved, um, that they can be kind of really self-serving at times. And I, I think I think that maybe the thing that people would understand a lot better after hearing the podcast is just the ways that that these bills are are made even when when they aren't being bribed were there any higher ups involved i know there was a question about dewine and an appointment he made to some commission and then he said he knew nothing about the illegal money blah 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 is there a possibility is there a threat is there a, a possibility that this goes higher up in the government. Is this a big deal? Can this be a big deal politically? Well, the I think the most important thing to remember with, with the case um, is that it's still open. Um, the federal investigators have not shut the books on it yet. Um, there's this talk that there could be other indictments, um, either of other companies or people. But, um, you know, no one's talking on those details right now. But there is there's a lot of um, evidence that investigators want to know more about Ohio's top Republicans, like um, issuing subpoenas, requesting depositions, and yeah, there's um, a former chairman of the Ohio Public Utilities Commission who's been embroiled in a few of these lawsuits that came about after the HB6 indictments. Um, he was appointed by Dewine shortly after Dewine was elected governor in 2018. And um, right before he took that role, he got paid $4 million by First Energy. And in the years preceding that, he got paid about $18 million. So in the decade before he went to regulate Ohio's utilities, he was working directly for them, which some people (laughs) would say that's a little too cozy. A little conflict of interest, maybe? Yeah, and he didn't put those connections on his the public documents like of of his letter of interest for that seat either. Um he hasn't been charged with anything uh and he denies any wrongdoing, I should say. Frankly, Ohio just could use some tighter ethical rules because um it doesn't appear that he broke any state rules, but we actually don't know that yet because the investigations that the state are conducting are actually on hold while the federal investigation continues. Is the state investigation led by Republicans? It's, well, um, it, the PUCO is made up of five commissioners um, who are appointed by governors. Um, these are five-year terms. So everyone on that commission would have been appointed by a Republican governor. There are still inves- investigations underway, and possibly more heads could roll. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Renee Fox is the reporter for radio station WOSU in Columbus, Ohio. She's the host of the station's podcast called The Power Grab. Renee, tell us where we can hear it. Yeah, um, you can find it on WOSU.org or wherever else you might listen to your podcast, Apple, Google, Spotify. Renee, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Ken. I'm very well acquainted with the seven days. I keep a busy schedule trying to fit them in. I'm proud to be a glutton and I don't have time for sloth. I'm greedy and I'm angry and I don't 
care who gets hurt I'm Mr. Bad Example Take a look at me I live to be a hundred And go down in infamy That's it for this week's show. Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. Remember, it's not too late to order your Political Junkie t-shirts and socks and get them before Christmas. If you've got comments, questions, or complaints, send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. You can also tweet me at Ken Rudin or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram at The Political Junkie. Political Junkie is made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com slash donate. I'm Ken Rudin. Thanks for listening. Please stay safe. I'll see you soon. Somewhere down the line to hire